Lord, you know, we, we talk about sometimes being on our face before you, Lord. And if we stop and think about it, Lord, since your presence is everywhere, we need to be on our face spiritually before you all the time. And if we can remember that and focus on that, it would sure change the way we think and act and talk most of our days. So, Lord, knowing that you, we are in your presence, I just pray that you would touch our hearts and cause us to have an understanding of your words that we might draw close to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When you're talking about historical books and scripture, sometimes it's difficult to just start right in on the book because if you don't have any idea of the background, you you wonder what in the world is this person talking about. And we're going to be in the Old Testament And I'll go ahead and tell you, so you can take 30 minutes to find it, we're going to be in the book of Nahum. And it occurs to me I have never in my life heard anybody speak on the book of Nahum, which doesn't mean it hasn't happened, but it's not a very frequent thing anyway. So it's a couple of books after Jonah, between Micah and Habakkuk. I think Bill knew ahead of time. But that's the only way he could have found it that fast. <laughs> Page 782. <laughs> <laughs> Just a few years ago, actually, excuse me, a few months ago, March, I think, maybe April, there was a discovery of two new Dead Sea Scroll fragments. And this is significant because the last discovery was made 65 years ago in 1956. And the two fragments that they found came from the books of Zechariah and Nahum. The fragment from Zechariah is from chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. And the fragments read, These are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. Also let none of you devise evil in your hearts against another. And do not love perjury, false oath. For these, for all these, are what I hate, declares the Lord. When he talks about peace in your gates, judgment and peace in your gates, gates are where judgments took place. So he's talking about justice in the court, the way we would look at it. And uh, Zechariah chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. 
it's you know it's easy to make something out of nothing and it's easy to ignore things that ought to flash right in front of our face but it seems rather significant to me that after 56 years they find two fragments and they found nothing since 1956 so this is what it says. It talks about the things that God hates. And then, you know, you just say, is this a coincidence that this fragment was found at this time telling us these are things God hates and you wouldn't know it from the way people act today, that he hates anything. The, um, the fragment from Nahum is from chapter 1 verses 5 and 6. And Nahum is where I'm mainly going to be today. And that fragment says this, Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence. The world and all the inhabitants in it, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. And again, it's easy to say, you know, what's the big deal? But God doesn't do things without a reason. These things did not just happen to be found at this particular time. Why now, and why after all these years? We don't know a lot about Nahum, just that he says that he, he calls himself an Elkishite in verse 1. And there's not a, not a lot we know to identify what that means. Typically, this identifies a place where somebody is from. And some leading historians see it as a city of Capernaum, because that's the city that, that is named after Nahum. And you can see it from the way that the name is spelled by the two words. You know, Jesus did most of his, or not most, but so much of his ministry in Capernaum. And this is what he, this is what he says in Matthew 11, verses 20 through 24. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. If you try to find any of these three cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and uh, Capernaum. Today, you'll get different um, 
opinions as to exactly where they are because there's no great uh, site where they know these place, these places are. And he says that it's you're going to Jesus pronounces really a woe to these cities, and woe can be a uh, a pre a. a a, a pre, uh, what am I trying to say here? A pronunciation, a, a pronunciation of a final judgment, or it can be a statement deploring the miserable condition in God's sight of the one He's talking to, and that seems to be the case in, that Nahum is pronouncing. If you look in three one in Nahum, he says, "Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage." And the city he's talking about is Nineveh. And typically, when a prophet comes prophesying, he usually has something to say to God's people about their sin, and unless they repent, the judgment that's going to come upon them. Nahum is a little different because he's not talking to Judah. He's not talking to Israel, but he's mainly dealing with the Assyrian Empire and the city of Nineveh specifically. We could probably call Nahum Jonah part two because they're both talking to the same city about 140 years apart. If you remember Jonah, the reluctant prophet, he fled in the opposite direction from where God told him to go. God had told him to go to Nineveh and cry against it because of their great wickedness. But Jonah hated the Assyrians, and he wanted nothing more than to see God's wrath poured out on them. And it's easy to understand why if you read anything about the Assyrians. They were the, some of the most cruel and wicked people that have ever been. They hung the skins of some of their conquered people out for everybody to see. Skulls were everywhere. Dead bodies everywhere. Babies, it didn't make any difference. At any rate, as you know, it took a great fish swallowing Jonah to get him going in the right direction. And this time, Jonah went into the city of Nineveh and said, Yet forty days, and God will overthrow. And Scripture says that the people of Nineveh believed God and fasted. From the king to the animals, sackcloth and ashes and fasting. And I find that remarkable. Think about this. One of the most wicked cities in the world ever. And they listened to the word of God and they repented. From the king to the animals. And it says, and when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had claimed. We had declared he would bring on them. Jonah was not pleased. <laughs> And again, if you know anything about Nineveh, you can understand why he wouldn't be. But this is what Jonah says about God. 
I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Can you imagine anybody saying that about any of their pagan gods? That I know that you're compassion, merciful, and you relent concerning calamity that you want to bring on people. Think about any of the mythological gods, any of the gods of any religion you know now, and say how merciful they are, how compassionate they are. It doesn't exist. They're not. So Jonah preached, and the people of Nineveh believed, and a great revival broke out among the people. But like most revivals, it didn't last. And revivals never last because people become complacent. And the desires of the flesh overcome. They overcome them unless the fire is fed by continual repentance by the word of God. Sin is always present. It always lingers. And it drowns out what you remember. It drowns out the great work of God unless you continue in it. Now it's about a century and a half later. And Assyria has gone from a powerful nation to a superpower. From evil to even greater evil. They had invaded the northern kingdom of Samaria. They besieged it for close to three years before it fell. And the people that didn't kill and slaughter, they led away into captivity. And it's true that God used Assyria to punish his people in the northern kingdom. And he did that because they had turned away continually to idolatry. But it's also true that the nations that God uses for punishment are also responsible for how they act. And if they're cruel and they're without pity, they too are going to suffer the same kind of fate because God calls them to hear his voice and to be responsible too. And now the Lord speaks through Nahum the prophet. And let's look at the first chapter of Nahum. And again, you need a little, that's why a little background before I read any of it. So the first chapter reads, The oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan, 
and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his greatness, by his presence. The world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue the enemies into darkness. Whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice. Like tangled thorns and like those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed. A stubble completely withered. From you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength, and likewise many, even so, they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. Now he's talking to Judah, or his people. So now I will speak, excuse me, I will break the yoke bar from upon you, and, <clears throat> and I will tear off your shackles. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image. From the house of your gods, I will prepare your grave, for you are counter, for you are contemptible. Behold, in the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who announces justice and peace. Celebrate your feast, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. For hundreds of years, there was no evidence of where Nineveh was after it was destroyed. They only found it in recent times in, in Iraq, I think near Mosul. But nobody knew where it was for a long time. It was so completely destroyed. But this is God talking about those that trust in their own power and their own strength, their own armies, the most powerful nation that there was. And Nahum is talking to them probably something like 80 years before this happens. So nobody would have believed it at the time because Nineveh was at the height of its power. They slowly began to, to drift away from it, but for the time of the writing, it was impossible to think of them falling. Nobody did that. Every nation paid tribute to Nineveh, to the Assyrians. None of us mentioned in the first verse of this chapter. But this is also where the Lord feels about anyone or any nation that stirs up his anger. So it's not reserved strictly for none of us. 
God wants evil and murderous Assyria to know what's going to happen to them, but he also wants Israel and he wants us to know and to take heed and to not ignore it and think this is history and it doesn't apply to anybody else because the word of God never does that. We have to understand that righteousness is not going to pass to the next generation automatically. It'll only pass if it's taught to the next generation. Nineveh didn't do this, and it degenerated into depravity. And it doesn't take great insight to see this happening today. If you don't teach it, it doesn't happen. What does it mean when we see that see Scripture saying God is jealous? The first thing we need to do is see that there's a difference between envy and jealousy. God's not envious about what anybody has because it all belongs to him. Psalms 50 says, The Lord says, If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all it contains. And he says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle of a thousand hills. So if I'm hungry, I'm not going to tell you. What have you got to do with it? It's all mine anyway. God's not envious, but he is jealous. He's jealous about what he's jealous about what he has, that which somebody wants to take from him. He's jealous about his name. He's jealous about his reputation. He's jealous about his people and this world that belong to him. And God is a God of vengeance because he is a God of jealousy. One follows the other. Nahum concentrates overwhelmingly on God's jealousy and his vengeance against those who defy him and against those that trust in themselves. He's jealous for his people and for their growth and their well-being. It's rooted in his love. Love for his people and his longing for their wholeness. It's all the way through. Love for his creation. All of this God is jealous for. And he's determined to bring it to full redemption. And the love for his name and glory, which we were created to praise, he's jealous for. You wouldn't want to live in a world, and neither would I, where the word, the person, the being in charge of the world did not care about evil. God cares. He's holy and righteous in all his way. The one who rules all is absolutely holy, and he's angry with sin. And he's angry with sin because he is holy. And because he's angry with sin, that's the hope of the universe. It wouldn't be difficult if we stop and think about it, and the breeze would quit. To argue that the anger of God toward evil is what drove Jesus to the cross. 
because he would not let evil win. There are penalties to pay for sin. So at the cross, we see the one who would pay the ultimate penalty for sin, taking it upon himself. At the cross, we see God's anger and we see God's justice. We see God's mercy all coming together. God will not forsake his righteous cause. There's a time when God's patience runs out, when he's had enough. And that's the message of the prophets. Nahum had the same message that Jonah had, but this time there was no way out. God's anger had been simmering for a long time. And like a a pot of water or some liquid on the stove, it had reached the boiling point. One of the messages that you see in Jonah is that Jonah shows that God has control over nature. Remember the storm for the boat that he was in? Remember the waves, the storm, the winds? Remember the fish? Remember the plant that grew up? God has control over nature. The message of Nahum is that God has control over history. So none of it is beyond the control of God. In contrast to to anger, God is good to his people. That's what it says in verse 7. Thank you, Wind. Verse 7 again says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. And it's so funny because that verse is sandwiched between 6 and 8. And 6 says, Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out with like fire and the rocks are broken up by him. And then you get the Lord is good. And then in verse 8, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of his adversaries and will pursue his enemies in the darkness. So it's sandwiched between his righteous indignation, his vengeance, but the Lord is good to those that are his. If you read about how Nineveh was constructed, you'll wonder how anybody could have ever conquered the city. Massive walls, many, many, many feet thick. You've got towers surrounding the city, innumerable tires, towers, where they could shoot arrows at anybody that tried to come at them. And it was a huge thing. Remember, Jonah said it was three days across the city but he walked one day into the city that's how that's how big Nineveh was at the time of Jonah and this is 140 years later and it's been significantly broadened increased at the top of the walls there was enough room for three chariots side by side to go around on the top of the walls 
They had fruits and vegetables that they had taken from every country they had conquered, and they had conquered them all. And they had gardens with them all growing, and they had a river flowing through it. So they had abundant water. So in chapter 1, we see God's wrath against Nineveh. And then in chapter 2, there are specific details about the city's destruction. What you've got is a combined army of the Medes and the Babylonians and the Scythians that have gradually gained strength over the years coming against them. And what they do is they dam up a river that flows into the city and they dam it up until there is a huge amount of water and then they release the water and the water batters the walls and creates a fissure in the wall so that they can come in A Greek historian said that the river not only broke down the walls of the city, but also inundated part of it. And historians give various reasons for Nineveh's fall, like internal corruption, which is part of any nation's fall, the rise of Babylon and external fractures and factions. And all of those may have been contributing things but Nahum at the very beginning of his prophecy gives the real reason the true answer the avenging rash of wrath of God destroyed Nineveh chapter 2 the one who scatters has come up against you man the fortress Watch the road. Now, read this. This sounds like an eyewitness account of what's happening at the time, written 75, 80 years before it happens. And Nahum is like a person watching it happen. Strengthen your back. Summon your strength. For the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob, Israel. Like the splendor of Israel. Even though devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches, the shields of his mighty men are colored red. The warriors are drenched in scarlet, dressed in scarlet. The chariots are enveloped in flashing steel when he is prepared to march. And the cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly in the streets. They rush wildly in the squares. Their appearance is like torches. They dash to and fro like lightning flashes. He remembers his stable, his nobles. They stumble in their march. They hurry to their wall. And their mount on the mantle is set up. Now these... Remember, this is the mightiest nation in the world, and they're confused. They're running around like madmen inside the city. What's happened? What they've done to all the nations before has happened to them now, and they're running around in terror inside their own city because there's these people attacking from the outside. 
and the walls are being destroyed. The gates of the river are open and the palace is dissolved. Again, 75 or 80 years ahead of time, he's telling how it's going to be breached. It is fixed. She is stripped. She is carried away. And her handmaids are moaning like the sound of doves, beating on their breasts. Though Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout her days, now they are fleeing. Stop, stop. But no one turns back. It's like the general saying, stop, come fight. And they're just running around like crazy trying to get away. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold, for there's no limit to the treasure. Wealth from every kind of desirable product, object. She is emptied. Yes, she is desolate and waste. Hearts are melting and knees knocking. Also, anguish is in the whole body, and all their knees are grown, faces are grown pale. Where is the den of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion, lioness, and lion's cub proud with nothing to disturb them. The lion tore through, tore enough for his cubs, killed enough for his lioness, and filled his lairs with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn up her chariots in smoke. A sword will devour your young lions. I will set off your prey from the land, and no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. I'm against you, says the Lord. He says, no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. He's talking about the envoys that go to these conquered nations saying, this is the tribute that you've got to pay. No more are they going to listen to this because none of us destroyed. And when he says earlier um, in verse 3, the shields of the mighty men are colored red. Most um, commentators think that the shields are bloody because of all the conquest that these invaders have had before as they come into Nineveh. And Nineveh is in a state of panic. The city that was considered in, unconquerable were the people that were the cruelest ever, that gave no mercy to others, were now getting no mercy. And he's talking about how the city is going to be invaded all this time before it ever happens. And the lion was a symbol for Nineveh with their statues and things of lions everywhere indicating the power. And then he talks about, oh, you're, they're running around in panic. It says in verse 9, Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasures or of the wealth of all <coughs> precious things. Nineveh was filled with all kinds of great treasures. And doing to, due to the plunder of so many nations and the tributes that they got year after year. Historians call the wealth of Nineveh unmeasurable. When they did uncover 
the ruins of Nineveh. I can't remember exactly when, maybe a hundred years ago, something like that. They found no gold, no silver, and it was countless what they had. So it had been plundered to the point that there was nothing left. The city's going to fall because it's the will of God. Confrontation with God, with the Almighty God of Israel, is fatal to the Assyrian Empire. Their voices of their envoys are no more. It's impossible, as far as I know, for anybody to know when the turning point of God's wrath was. When was the point that the simmering anger of God reached the boiling point and overflowed? Where is the point of no return? There's one event that stands out as a possibility that Scripture talks about. Around around 90 years before Nineveh was destroyed, the Assyrians, Nineveh people, they invaded the southern kingdom too. They had already taken away the northern kingdom in the captivity. And now they attacked the southern kingdom. And they devastated the southern kingdom. All the cities just about, the walls were battered down, and they were looted and burned people taken into captivity, killed. And now the Assyrian army is surrounding Jerusalem. And it's just a matter of time. And the envoy of the Syrian king, of the Assyrian king, is standing in front of the gates, taunting Hezekiah, the king of Israel, saying, you might as well come out and give up and I'll be sure that you're treated right and this sort of thing is a lie they never treated anybody right all they did was they were merciless to everybody but nevertheless he says when have any of the gods of any of these other places been able to protect them and do you think your god is going to be able to do anything he's nothing and this is not wise This is not wise to taunt the God of Israel. And Hezekiah, after trying a couple of things, finally does the right thing. And he throws up ash cloth and puts on sackcloth and he sends word to Isaiah, the prophet in the city. And he says, this is what the Assyrian king says. And Isaiah prays and he tells him, don't worry about it. This is what's going to happen. And that night, God sends an angel and 185,000 troops of the Assyrians die. And the next day they leave. Now this is not the end of Assyria. They're still a mighty nation, but they're gone right now from Israel. 185,000 the angel of the Lord, one angel, 185,000. So that gives you an indication of what difference does it make if God's on your side or not. 
Okay? And they're gone. The, the account of the Assyrians is a little different than this. What they write in their chronicles about, they write about how they destroyed all these cities in Israel and how they shut up Hezekiah in his city like a caged bird. It says, the terrifying splendor of Sennacherib's majesty overcame Hezekiah and his allies deserted him. That they don't say anything about actually taking Jerusalem because they did it. And they don't happen to mention that they lost 185,000 troops that night. And you can read it in Second Kings 18 and 19 and also in Chronicles. Taunting the Lord and calling into question his power and his glory is the action of fools. In chapter 3 of Nahum, it's very much a continuation of a lot of what's been said in the, in the second chapter and the first chapter. It begins with woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. And again, woe means different things, but it's never good. It's never a good thing. And so often it means your end has come. The judgment of God is now. None of us going to fall, and it's going to become a spectacle of desolation. But it says that no one is going to mourn, because if you look at the last verse of chapter 3, of Nahum it says there will be no relief for your breakdown your wound is incurable all who hear about you will clap their hands over you for on whom has not your evil passed continually you know this is this is so reminiscent of what you see today with so many things. Think about Eastern Europe with the Soviet Union being such an oppressor for so long. Who would have thought that they crumbled the way they did so quickly? (coughs) And when nations fall, it takes people by surprise. It happens so quickly. You think that here is the strongest nation that has ever been great might and before you know it it's crumbled and it's gone and if anything should be a lesson to the United States it should be scripture knowing that if you forsake God then you're God's enemy that's why repentance and, and is so important because we continue to sin repentance is not a one time thing because you can't pass it on to the other generations because you repented one time because repentance is supposed to characterize your life it, and if it doesn't 
you know, the scripture talks about out of the depths of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, I'm ashamed of what comes out of my mouth sometimes. And, you know, I just say, Lord, you, my heart's not where it's supposed to be. If it's bad language, if it's bad thoughts, if it's uh, inconsideration for other people, if it's being impatient with other people, and we don't, th- we stop to think that you know maybe they're having a bad day, like we've never had a bad day for goodness' sake. We just spew out anger and aggravation, and we go, "Look at your heart. You wouldn't do this if your heart was right, and I wouldn't either." And the prophets throughout tell us to examine our heart. Tell us to, that we need to repent before God continually because repentance doesn't last. It does not. It never has. Because sin is not eradicated. So Nahum stands as a warning not to trample upon God's grace. And the scripture tells us clearly that judgment is coming over all the earth. And God's going to repunit, going to punish the unrepentant, whether the unrepentant is a nation, whether it's a people, or whether it's a church. It doesn't make any difference. Again, it's not a one-time thing. It didn't work one time for Nineveh, and it won't work one time for us. So thank you, Nahum. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would examine our hearts and cleanse us. Lord, because we know that um, what we are. We know what we have been. We know what we want to be. So we ask you, Lord, to lead us by your strong right hand that we might um, please you and walk with you, exalt you and love you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.